So Daniel in the lion's den, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Um, and of course, uh, one of the reasons that it's such a famous story is because it's got lions in it, right? Um, and lions are cool. And so, um, and you know, I spent almost a decade living in Africa. Uh, and I'm going to tell a story about Africa and lions a little bit later in the message here. But, uh, but first, before we uh, get into that, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us to understand the meaning of the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved Daniel from the lions and that uh, you recorded that story for us in the scripture in such a way that we can learn many lessons about you and about us and about how we can live for you. And I pray now that you would open our hearts, open our minds so that we can understand your word. And may your Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts as we hear this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, this is a story uh, much more than a story about cool animals, right? Um, it is a story about a righteous man who was living in an ungodly society. It's a story about politics. It's a story that gives examples of how to live well and please God. And it's a story about human nature and how much of the world lives in ways that are not pleasing to God. So let's look at the story as it's told in the Bible and see what we can learn along the way. This is found in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, it takes up the whole chapter. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we'll read sections of it here. We're going to start with uh, verses 1 and 2, where it says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with, these admin with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So you remember from last week's story that um, we, we learned last week about the last king of Babylon and how Babylon fell to the Persian Empire. And this king that's mentioned here in this verse, Darius, is a Persian king. Um, and you remember that the, the Babylonian Empire was a very large empire. In fact, it was... Uh, I didn't double-check this, but I believe it was bigger than the Persian Empire before the Persians conquered it. So the Persian Empire has now more than doubled in size now that they are also ruling over the entire Babylonian Empire. And so they needed a government system to rule over this very large and very diverse territory. And so Darius the king decides that what they're going to do is they're going to use many of the same government officials who are already in place in the old administration. The old king, of course, he was killed, and we can assume most of the uh, royal family was killed off because you don't want rivals to the throne. But, um, but civil servants, the civilian government, seems to have been largely kept in place, which makes a lot of sense, really. And so the king had this structure of 120 satraps. I don't know why they called them satraps. That's a very strange title. But there were some kind of governors, regional governors, like the governors of the states, and then uh, there's 120 of those, and then three administrators over those 120. And Daniel, who was a very high-ranking and high-performing member of the old government, was given a place in the new government as one of these three uh, administrators. And the job of these three was to make sure that the king might not suffer loss. Right? We're going to talk about that a little more in just a moment, but 
That's their job. And it says in verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him above the whole kingdom. So once again, Daniel shows himself to be very capable, just as he has throughout the whole book of Daniel. Um, And remember that the Bible tells us that he was given wisdom from God in order to excel at all the things that he was doing. And and that, uh, so he's set up for another promotion. Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So we're not told exactly why the rest of the government officials didn't like Daniel and why they did not want him to be promoted, Uh, but uh, the king loved him, right? The king thought he was great, but he was clearly really good at his job. But there's a couple of hints here in the text that give us a pretty good idea of why these other guys were unhappy. Remember, the job of the administrators was to ensure that the king did not suffer loss. Well, what kind of loss would they be trying to protect the king from? Um, And we're given a pretty big clue about that in the things that his enemies think, we need to pin something on Daniel. Here's what we can find against him because everybody does this. So we're going to find corruption and we're going to find negligence and we're going to accuse him of those things. But those were the things that Daniel was preventing these other guys from doing. So here they were, feeling like, hey, I'm a satrap in the Persian uh, empire. That comes with certain privileges. I can take a few bribes and kickbacks and whatnot, and that's the way that the world works. And Daniel was neither corrupt nor negligent, and so he was, the reason he was so good at his job, what he was doing is he was preventing these guys from being corrupt and negligent. So, When you uh, worked for Daniel, you were not able to skim any profits. You were not able to embezzle or any of these other things. And you were not able to be lazy and negligent. When Daniel was your supervisor, you worked hard and you made sure things got done. And these guys were not happy with Daniel and the way that he was doing things. The king, he loved it. Uh, But the satraps and the other two administrators also were against him. They were not happy that Daniel was being Mr. Goody Two-Shoes and making it hard for them to get away with stuff. And so they thought, surely they can find some corruption and negligence on his part that they could accuse him of and get him thrown out so that they could uh, be corrupt and negligent without him as their administrator. But they couldn't find anything because Daniel was trustworthy. And so when they figured this out, there were two ways that they could respond, right? So they, they've, examined, they've investigated Daniel, they've looked at all of his things, and they find that he is, he is honest, trustworthy, and a good man. And so they could have responded the way the king responded. They could have looked at Daniel and said, man, this guy is a great example for us, and we should try to be more like Daniel, and admire uh, the way that he is doing things. They could have looked up to him as an elder statesman, 
who should be admired for being such a successful guy. And speaking of elder statesmen, um, sometimes when we uh, look at, have like Sunday school stories about Daniel in the lion's den, we picture him as a, as a young man. Uh, no, this, remember he's gone through the whole Babylonian empire at this point, and now the Persians have taken over. Daniel is most likely in his 80s at this point. And so Daniel's an older guy, but there's a lesson, you know, that's not the main point of the text here, but there's something for us to learn from that, right? Older people are still very much in a place that they can be used by God. So those of us who are a little younger, I think I'm still in that category. I've got a few gray hairs, but um, we, need to, uh, we need to look to our older, our older folks around us and, and not think, okay, he's past his prime. He, we don't need to work. And older people, we, you can't be thinking that, okay, God, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to relax now. Uh, God's done using me. No, God is using older people like Daniel, who's in his 80s at this point, to be uh, the prime guy in God's plan. Anyway, that's a side uh, point there. But these guys, they could have looked to Daniel. Here's this older guy who's, who's doing everything right and is great at his job, and, and they could have looked up to him. Or they could choose to attack him. Instead of seeking to be the best that they could be in order to try to, we're, we're going to try to match Daniel. Maybe even we'll outshine Daniel. No, we're going to just drag Daniel down. So which one of those two responses do you think would have been the godly and right way to respond? See, small, selfish people criticize and tear down their rivals. And godly people respect and learn from their rivals. And this story gives us a great example in Daniel of how to live a righteous life. But it also gives us an example in these guys of how not to live. So when we look around at our situation in our country right now, our political leaders, what do we see from their example? It's a pretty bad example of how to deal with our political rivals. Instead of saying something like, yeah, the other guys, they are good people. They have a lot of good ideas. We actually agree on most things, but I have some differences with them on the best way to do this and that issue. Instead, we just attack one another ruthlessly. And yeah, Trump is obviously the worst when it comes to this, but both sides are doing this. They're attacking each other constantly and putting each other down and doing exactly what these guys did. They're trying to bring charges against each other. And most of us have followed the example of our leaders and are also insulting and, and criticizing and tearing down people with whom we disagree. We're calling them names, and we're hoping that charges are brought against our political opponents. Now, this approach was not only wrong because Daniel actually was a righteous man. It's always wrong. It's always wrong to treat our rivals that way. Christians should be an example of a humble and compassionate and loving way of relating to people who are our political rivals, our work rivals, whoever 
And not just congressmen and governors and mayors and stuff, but what about your friends and neighbors who disagree with you and are on the other side of the political debates? Don't treat them the way that Daniel's rivals treated him. Instead, we need to be like Daniel. He was so righteous that they were unable to find any accusations they could make against him. All their investigations came up with nothing. Because Daniel was trustworthy, honest, uncorruptible, and diligent. And this is one of these places uh, that shows something really interesting about the two parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Sometimes people like to think that the Old Testament and the New are are very different, and they present very different kind of uh, recommendations on how to live and a different picture of God. That is not true. The Old Testament and the New Testament are actually very much on the same page um, and, uh, and are in agreement about the way that God is and the way that we should live. They're not exactly the same, but they dovetail together. So are you familiar with uh, woodworking and the idea of a dovetail joint? A dovetail joint in this uh, picture here shows a couple of dovetail joints. It's a way to put together two pieces of wood. Instead of just taking the two square ends and just kind of sticking them together and putting a screw in there or something, you you cut out both pieces so that they fit perfectly together, and you end up with a much stronger and better joint. They're not cut the same, they're cut to fit. And when an expert woodworker makes them, they mesh perfectly. And that kind of illustrates the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. They're not exactly the same, but they are made so that they mesh perfectly. And this story of Daniel uh, really illustrates well how the Old Testament and the New Testament dovetail. So in the book of Daniel, and especially in our story today, we have a story about a man who lived such a good life as a foreigner in exile among the pagans that although they wanted to accuse him of wrongdoing, they instead saw his good deeds. And Daniel was submissive for the Lord's sake to the king and the human authorities, and so by doing good, he was able to silence the accusations of his enemies. And this is typical of the Old Testament. It is mostly made up of stories of people who serve as positive and negative examples for us, and stories about God and how he relates to people in the past as a model for how we can learn about the nature of God and how he can be expected to relate to us now. Meanwhile, in the New Testament... We still have some stories, but we also have a lot more direct teaching uh, where it just explains this is how you should live instead of just telling a story as an example. So the dovetail or one of the dovetails of the Old Testament story of Daniel is found in the book of 1 Peter. So if you flip over to 1 Peter, you'll see how he is giving direct instruction that is the same as what we have just learned from the book of Daniel. It says, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, Daniel's enemies here don't end up glorifying God at the end of the story, but the king does. And no doubt other people of the empire also are 
affected by Daniel in exactly the way that's being discussed here. They see his good deeds and they glorify God. It's, it's almost like Peter has just finished reading the book of Daniel and he's kind of writing out his instructions for how to live like Daniel. I don't, that could be what happened. It doesn't, he doesn't actually mention Daniel by name, but look at the next... Uh, Oh, Peter tells us, live as foreigners and exiles, right? As Christians, we are not at home in this world. Now, I'm proud to be an American, and, but the nation of the United States is not my first loyalty. In fact, as Christians, we are called to think of ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost, We are Americans or Canadians or Frenchmen or whatever other thing only secondarily to our real citizenship in heaven. So secondarily that uh, we are foreigners and aliens. We are exiles compared to our non-Christian countrymen. As I mentioned earlier, I lived overseas as a missionary in South Africa from uh, 2001 to 2010. And when you're a foreigner... Much of your life is just the same as the people around you. Uh, most of what you do is just like the things that they do, and you're, you're just kind of living your life the same as, as the people around you. But every now and then, something comes up that reminds you, I'm not at home here. These people do not think the same way that I do. They have different priorities than I do. Their culture is not quite the same as my culture. Daniel certainly knew what that meant. He was a literal foreigner in Babylon, even though at this point he'd lived there for most of his life. But Peter says, think like Daniel. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Live such good lives among the liberals, I mean, among the pagans, that although they want to accuse you of doing wrong, they will instead see your good deeds. This is the way that we are called to relate to the culture around us. Not with opposition and animosity and a culture war. With such good lives that when they want to accuse us, they will find nothing but good deeds. Verse 13, still here in Daniel, or sorry, in 1 Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, for it is, or, and to commend those who do right. So Daniel is, again, our perfect illustration of what Peter's talking about here. Uh, Daniel submitted to the evil Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's submitting to the Persian kings. See, who is in charge of the nation that Daniel is a part of does not change his godly responsibility to submit himself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And Daniel, he didn't just kind of okay, I'm living in this country, so I'm just going to keep my head down over here and hope that they don't notice me. No, he's part of the government of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Belshazzar and all these guys. 
He's a prominent person, and by his wisdom and righteousness, he distinguishes himself above all the other government officials. Verse 15, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Again, it's like Peter is explaining the lessons of the story of Daniel. Daniel's rivals wanted to bring accusations against him, but because he had done good, they had nothing to say. He was not covering up evil. He was living in submission to God, and even in a pagan society, he was able to show and earn respect from the king. Sometimes we read instructions like what Peter's saying here, and we're like, okay, Peter, that's a great uh, kind of model for us to, to think about, but no one could ever really live like that. But Daniel did, and Daniel was... I don't know if you say a regular guy exactly, but Daniel was just a person like us. And he really lived this out, and we can too. We can live such good lives among the pagans that they see our good deeds and glorify God. We can silence our critics with our good works. Now back to uh, our story back in Daniel chapter 6. As you know, Daniel's righteousness did not earn the respect of everyone. The king loved him. I'm sure lots of other people in the, in, the country, in the country there did as well, but he had his enemies. And they were not persuaded by his goodness. And so in verse 5, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they knew that Daniel had a vulnerability. Serving the king was not his top priority. Daniel thought of himself first and foremost as a foreigner and exile living in a pagan land. And his first priority was to serve God. And his career and his responsibilities to the king came after his God. And his enemies correctly guessed that they could exploit this. However, as they looked at Daniel and the way that he lived and the way that he worshipped his God, they couldn't see anything illegal, any real problems. How can, we, how can we bring this to our advantage? And so they decided they needed to uh, a scheme of some kind to make it illegal. And so they went to the king and they convinced him that as a means of unifying his new giant empire, he should proclaim that for a month, no one could pray directly to their own gods. Instead, they were to pray to King Darius, and he would function as an intermediary between the people and their gods. The idea seems to be somewhat similar to the way that some Catholics mistakenly understand praying to the saints. Rather than bringing their request directly to God, no, they'll, they'll pray to Mary or pray to one of the saints, and then the saint, who has a better connection with God than I do, will then bring my request to God himself. So I don't pray to God directly, I just pray to the saints, and then the saints help me out. Something like that appears to have been what Darius had in mind here. 
people will pray to me, and then I'll go and talk to whatever idols are out there, and, 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 we'll, uh, and it'll show that I am the favorite of the gods. And so when everyone is uh, going through me for their religious practices, um, it will raise Darius's uh, prominence in everyone's minds. And especially it would demonstrate his superiority over all the priests of all the other religions that uh, normally would fulfill that role in those religions. So in uh, verse 7, it says, uh, Yeah, the king issued an edict to enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So when Daniel hears about this, it's a new law. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God as he had done before. And these men went as a group. Oh, sorry. Stop right there. Uh, so Daniel doesn't organize a protest. He doesn't stage a public prayer at the gates of Babylon. what he's always done. He goes home and he prays toward Jerusalem. Even though the temple has been destroyed some years earlier by his former employer, Nebuchadnezzar, who had demolished the temple, uh, but Daniel still honors the scripture and the prophetic prayer of Solomon that he had prayed uh, when the temple was dedicated. So we see why he was praying toward Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. This is when Solomon had just finished uh, having the temple constructed, and he was at the dedication of the temple. And this was the prayer that Solomon prayed. He says to God, May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then Solomon predicts, he says, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away, exactly what has happened to Daniel, Um, And then they pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven your dwelling place hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Daniel is aware of this this, uh, prayer of Solomon from the temple dedication, and so that's what he's doing. That's his regular practice three times a day. He goes and probably because he's got an upper, uh, upper story window where he can look out toward Jerusalem and see off on the horizon um, uh, which, uh, where Jerusalem would be, he goes there and he prays. And of course, this is exactly what his opponents were hoping for. Can you imagine how excited they were when they, they, they hatched this whole plan and they're like, is Daniel, what, is it, what will he do? Oh, he's doing exactly what we hoped he would do. There he is in his window. And he's praying. And so they go to the king. 
And the king's not happy. He's not angry with Daniel. Um, see, Darius appears to be a lot less of a hothead than Nebuchadnezzar was. Right? In, in, the, in the very parallel story that we have a couple of chapters earlier of the fiery furnace, when Nebuchadnezzar sees that, that uh, the, the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are not going to bow down to his idol, he's furious with them. And he wants the furnace even hotter as he throws them in. Darius, a little more uh, in control of himself, not quite as uh, angry. And when he hears about Daniel, he tries not to punish Daniel. He doesn't want to punish Daniel. He can see what's going on here. But uh, it says in uh, verse 14... Uh, let's see here. Verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But the king wasn't able to do anything about it. His hands were tied and he had to fulfill the law. This is another uh, political lesson for us for today, right there in that uh, section. Because, see, if we do manage to get people into positions of power who are favorable to Christianity, that doesn't mean that all of our problems are going to be solved. Right? Here's as, as, as favorable as you can get, and in the highest position you can get, and he was unable to help Daniel. Daniel is totally on, or the king is totally on Daniel's side here, but he doesn't, he's not able to help. So we should not put all our trust and all our hopes in getting the right person elected and into office, and that's going to solve our problems because it just doesn't work that way. So anyway, the king gives the order. Daniel's thrown into the den with a bunch of lions. So let's talk now about lions. I told you I was going to tell you a story about when I was in Africa and uh, encountered a bunch of lions there. Here's a picture that I took uh, when I was there in Africa. Of, uh, of a lion. This was at a private game reserve that was not too far from where we lived in Johannesburg. In, uh, in South Africa, the game parks, uh, the private game parks, are run a little bit differently than the big uh, national parks. Um, in the big parks, the animals pretty much live as they would in the wild. The lions and the other predators are just kind of out there uh, hunting their uh, natural prey, the antelope and the uh, different things, and, and, and they... Uh, they just live like they would in the wild. But in the smaller parks, um, they, can't, they can't do it that way. Uh, the predators uh, would just devastate the, the, the animals in the small park, and the, so they can't have it that way, so they feed them. Um, it's a little, little bit of a different kind of a system. Um, and when they feed the lions, people come and watch. And so did you notice there's a bunch of cars in the background of that picture there? Um, Here's how they do it at this particular park. At designated times each week, they would have lion feedings, and they would do it in a certain area of the park where they had this big circular road. And cars would drive in and park in the circle, and the people in the cars would wait for the lion feeding. And of course, the lions knew that when the cars start parking in the circle, that means we're going to get fed pretty soon, and so the lions would gather when the cars started to gather. And the lions would be milling around among the cars, waiting to be fed. And there would be around a dozen lions or so that would just walk right up among the cars um, as you're waiting there. 
Occasionally, they'd cause some mischief. Uh, they would bite the cars, do some different damage to the cars. Sometimes they like to bite the tires of the cars, um, which if, you're, uh, if your tire gets bit by a lion, uh, you've got a flat, you just drive out on it. Uh, you can't change it there. <laughs> Once you're out of the lion area, then you change your tire because you're never going to repair that anyway, so just drive on it. Um, we went to this event uh, a few times, and uh, no lion ever damaged our car, but we, but we did see it happen. Um, in this picture here, you can see, yeah, this picture, you can see how the actual feeding was done. This truck would drive in um, with a dead cow in the bed of the truck, tailgates down, there's a chain attached to the cow, and then you can kind of see that guy there with his hand out the window is holding the other end of the chain. And so as the truck would drive down into the center of the circle, there's a big post there, and he would throw a loop of the chain over that post, and then they just keep driving, and the chain would yank the dead cow out the back of the pickup as the truck drove away, and then the lions would pounce on it. The, the cow was already dead, but it was still fairly uh, a, a bit of a gruesome sight to see these uh, lions jump in and, uh, and start eating, but it was pretty cool. Now Daniel is in a den full of lions. Now, the way the story is told, it seems like what's happening here, it's not exactly an execution, right? Uh, it, it, what this is, it pretty much amounted to an execution, but the fact that Daniel was let out in the morning, even though he, they couldn't prevent him being put in, but they were able to let him out in the morning, why was that? It's because it seems like what's going on here is what they call a trial by ordeal. This was a thing that uh, used to happen in, in the legal processes of various uh, countries where they, to test whether someone was really guilty or not, they would have to endure an ordeal. And, uh, and of course, in this case and in many of the other ordeals that we know of from history, there's basically no chance of surviving. But if you did survive, it proved your innocence. So Darius, who apparently had some hope that Daniel uh, might survive the ordeal, he hurries to check as soon as the sun comes up. It says in verse 20, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God." So God had chosen to save Daniel from the ordeal. No wound, no struggle. Daniel wasn't down there fighting off lions. Uh, God saved him because he had trusted in God. And then, in case anyone thought maybe these were tame lions who just weren't very hungry at the moment or something, uh, the next part of the story is that Daniel's enemies then are brought, and they are thrown into the lion's den. We're going to test them with the ordeal. Let's see if you guys are innocent like Daniel was. And uh, it says that they were killed even before they reached the floor of the lion's den. And having watched hungry lions eat, I can well imagine that that is exactly what happened. Now, is this story telling us that if we are faithful to God, 
that he will keep us safe from all harm? No. He will keep us safe from ultimate harm, that is, he will keep us safe from hell, but he does not keep his people safe from all harm. And we know that not only by just looking around and seeing the world around us and seeing how many times good people are suffering, but we also see it in the teachings of the Bible. There's many stories in the Bible of bad things happening to God's people, and there's direct teaching about it too. In the book of Hebrews, uh, he's re- uh, we have some summaries of some stories from the Old Testament. He's talking about how God has treated people from the Old Testament. And what he says here in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 32. Must be 22. Um, Sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. God comes to the rescue. I mean, he's, he kind of, I'm pretty sure he's referring to Daniel here. He talks about lions and, and how people have had, God has done so many great things for his people. But look at the rest of this verse. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. See, God does not always save his people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that, right? Uh, When they were about to get thrown into the furnace, they told Nebuchadnezzar that whether God saved them or not, they would not bow down to his idol. Now, Daniel, we don't have recorded for us a speech that he made similarly before he got thrown into the lion's den, but he certainly had that attitude. He didn't know whether God was going to save him from the lions, but he was not going to uh, stop worshiping God and stop praying to God uh, because of the threat. And that's Daniel's example for us. Sometimes we will need to choose whether to follow God's law or follow the way of the kingdom in which we live. It's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that we're going to be in a situation that Daniel was in where he's asked to risk his very life in order to worship God. But it is very likely, almost certain, that we will be called on to live as foreigners and exiles on earth and live differently and, and, and in a way that seems strange to the people around us. And some people around us will respond like Darius and they will respect us for our principles. And some people will respond like the other officials and dislike us because we don't go along with the way that they do things. 
Jesus himself, he experienced both of those reactions, right? Lots of people loved Jesus, and some people hated Jesus. For our conclusion today, let's return again to 1 Peter, where the lessons from Daniel's story receive their New Testament dovetail. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Now, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's our example. To entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, give us the courage to be like Daniel. Help us to know when the situations arise. Help us recognize the times when we must choose to live differently. And then give us the courage to do it, even when we may be mocked or insulted because of it. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, Clearwater Church. I'm Bill Burgess, and it's my privilege to uh, lead us in uh, celebrating communion today. Uh, a, um, a little thought to begin with. Um, I, I really appreciate the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Um, and uh, we, we, we clearly relate to him as one of the heroes of the faith. But I want to challenge you today to, to relate to Daniel a little more personally. And think about... Um, how Daniel, did, did he know?